Have you ever gone through a very difficult time in your life and thought that maybe God was punishing you for something? Have you ever thought that the reason things are going bad in your life is because God is being vindictive and he's paying you back for your sin? Have you ever thought that God was mad at you? Have you ever thought that God was punishing you and that's why things are so bad in your life? That's why you are experiencing trials and tribulations? Well, I'm sure you have and so have I. And Peter's audience was most likely experiencing the same thing. They were undergoing severe trials and suffering and hardships. I mean, it was one thing after another kind of suffering, wave after wave after wave of sorrow, trial after trial after trial, intense suffering precisely because they were disciples of Jesus Christ, because they were following Jesus Christ. They couldn't get a break from the nonstop trials and sorrows of life. And I'm sure they, like us, began to doubt God's love for them. I'm sure they were tempted to think that God was punishing them. I'm sure they began to think that God was mad at them. And that's why Peter will help to recalibrate them at the beginning of his letter. He is writing to tell them and to tell us, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. If you're a Christian, you've turned from your sins, you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. No one's going to ask you to move out. No one's going to evict you. No one's going to give you a 30-day notice out of God's love. You live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. And that's exactly what we will see in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1 today. Contrary to how we may imagine God, contrary to how we think that he deals with us, we live in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. Even when we are undergoing severe testing and suffering, even when we go through trials where we just think we can't hold on for one more day. So in verse 2 of his letter, Peter is explaining to his readers how the triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how the Trinity rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty in order to save his elect people, in order to set them apart where they would remain forever in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And that's good news for suffering people. That's good news for people who are going through trial after trial after trial. That's good news for anyone. So look again at verses 1 through 2 of 1 Peter and hear the word of the triune God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, 
and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Last week I said that we were going to come back and talk more about the word elect today. As we saw last week, to be elect means to be chosen. As Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, to speak of his readers as elect means that they have been chosen by God. Clearly the readers are primarily Gentiles. Often in the Old Testament, Israel is designated as God's chosen and elect people. Peter indicates at the outset, therefore, that the church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of God, his chosen people. He forecasts here the theme of 1 Peter 2, 9, where the church is called a chosen people. So as in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his people. So in the new, God has chosen believers to be his people. So Peter is writing to a Gentile audience, and he says that they are elect exiles, Chosen exiles, chosen and elect sojourners and pilgrims and transients and temporary residents and immigrants and aliens and strangers. All those things that we saw last week. And that is who we are as the people of God. And the three phrases that we see in verse 2 modify the words elect Exiles. The three phrases that we will look at today show us how the triune God rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty in order to save his elect people. The three, three phrases that we will look at today will show us that the good news of the gospel is this. Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. If you are a Christian, it is precisely because God chose you. It is because he placed you forever in the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself into that sphere, and there is nothing you can do to get yourself out. So please let me repeat that. There is nothing that you can do to get yourself into the sphere of God's perpetual favor and unabated delight. And thank God there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. Why? Because God has done it all. God does all the work in saving his elect people. And it started in eternity past. Theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Danny Hyde explains in his book, Welcome to a Reformed Church. He says, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit covenanted to share their eternal love and fellowship with their creatures. In human terms, God the Father covenanted to create a people whom he knew would sin and to choose from this fallen mass a great multitude that no one could number and to give them to Christ, whom he, God the Father, would crush on the cross 
according to his eternal will. The son covenanted to accomplish their redemption and the Holy Spirit covenanted to apply the work of the son to those the father chose. All of that took place in eternity past when the triune God covenanted together to bring about salvation for a people he knew would fall, people he knew would sin. And all that took place in eternity past is being fleshed out here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So let's look at each of these phrases that modify uh, and tell us what it means to be elect. What it means that we are elect exiles or chosen exiles. In verse 2, phrase number 1 that we're going to look at that tells us what it means that we are elect exiles is this. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does it mean that God foreknew his children? What does it mean that God foreknew his people? Well, let me tell you first what it does not mean. It does not mean that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that you would choose him, and so he decided to choose you. God's foreknowledge is not about him taking some binoculars and scanning the horizon of the future and saying, aha, I see that Benji Magnus will choose me one day. I see that he will, of his own accord, choose me, so therefore, I know, and therefore, he is one of my elect, my chosen ones. That's not the idea behind foreknowledge. The Greek word used here for re- is recalling the Hebrew concept of foreknowledge. The word to know God in Hebrew often refers to God's loyal covenant love that he bestows on his people. It means that he sets his covenant love and his devotion upon his people in advance. We see this in passages like this in the Old Testament. The Lord, speaking of Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19, says, For I have chosen, Hebrew, known, I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. We also see it in the Lord, in the Lord choosing Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew, I chose you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And you see it in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, when the Lord rebukes Israel. Hear this word that Yahweh the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known or chose of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So to be known by God is to be chosen by God. God chooses because he loves, and for him to love is to choose. And these two themes are married together in Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. And because he loved your fathers... And chose their offspring after them. Commenting on Deuteronomy 4.7. Dr. Eugene Merrill says this. In this brief motive clause occur two of the most covenantally significant words in the Old Testament. Love and choose. As technical terms they are virtually synonymous. As a great many scholars have put beyond doubt. In other words. 
To love is to choose, and to choose is to love. God chooses and elects his people because he loves them. And he loves them because he has chosen them. And that might bother some of you. Because we live in a politically correct world and we stress fairness and equality in everything that we do. We give trophies and medals to every kid in every kind of sport, even if they never play the game. They just warm the bench the whole time. Everybody gets a trophy nowadays, don't they? Everybody gets a medal. Everybody gets a ribbon. That's the world that we live in. So we are conditioned to stress equality and fairness. And when we come to the Bible, for many of us, that is the lens through which we read Scripture. We're all about fairness and equality. And so I know the argument goes like this. When speaking of God electing or choosing certain people to experience salvation, the argument is usually it's not fair if God chooses certain people to be saved. That's not loving. It's not loving for God to choose people to be his elect people. But the biblical record says that it is loving because God loves He chooses. The most loving thing that God does is choose. The most loving thing that God does is choose sinners who would be born rebels and then save them because of his love, because of his choice in eternity past. It's the most loving thing that he does. He chooses. He loves his elect people. So to be chosen by God, to be foreknown by God the Father means that in eternity past, God the Father set his covenantal love and affection on you, Christian. To be foreknown by God means that God chose you. It means that he placed you forever in the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there's nothing you can do to get yourself into that sphere. And thank God there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of that sphere. Because of God the Father's foreknowledge in eternity past, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. 
This is why, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. Because the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has lavished all of these wonderful gospel benefits upon his children, upon even you. You live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God, as John Owen said. But now the love of Christ, being the love of God, is effectual and fruitful in producing all the good things which he wills unto his beloved. He loves life, loves grace, and loves holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant, loves us into heaven. How many millions of sins in every one of the elect, every one whereof were enough to condemn them all, hath this love overcome? What mountains of unbelief doth it remove? Look upon the conversation of any one saint. Consider the frame of his heart. See the many stains and spots, the defilements and infirmities wherewith his life is contaminated. And tell me whether the love that bears with all this be not to be admired. And is it not the same toward thousands every day? What streams of grace, purging, pardoning, quickening, assisting do flow from it every day? This is our beloved. He loves you into covenant Christian, he loves you into heaven. He loves you into the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And that ought to make your heart warm. And if you feel like you can't take it in anymore because it's such good news, the good news that God the Father, what he has done for you in choosing you and loving you in eternity past, if you think it's too much for your heart to handle, then guess what? The Holy Spirit is just as involved in your salvation as God the Father. The Holy Spirit rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty. He was active in saving you. And that's what we'll see in our second phrase in verse two. The second phrase that modifies elect exiles is this, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does it mean that we are in the sanctification of the Spirit? Unfortunately, when most people see the word sanctification or the word holy, they think of concepts like purity and righteousness. They think of the progressive growth in holiness of a believer. But the Old and New Testament words for sanctification or being holy means something different. To be sanctified, to be holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. It means to be separated from something and dedicated to something else. Now, of course, purity and godly living should flow out of our being dedicated to God. But the main idea of holiness or sanctification is being set apart, being different. So when we say that God is holy, of course he is pure and without sin. But to say that God is holy is to say that he is different from us, that he is not like 
us. That he is separated from us and he's in a whole other category. In other words, God is not like us and we are not like him because he's in his own category. That's what it means to say that God is holy. There's no one like him anywhere. So when Peter says that we are elect exiles who are in the sanctification of the spirit, Peter is saying that we have been separated from sin, from the world, from the devil, and we are now dedicated to God. It means that we belong to God now. And I know you understand this concept of holiness or sanctification or being set apart because it happens in our homes all the time. What happens when you wake up in the morning and you go to pour a bowl of cereal and somebody sometime in the night got up and either drank all the milk or made their own bowl of cereal? What do you say in the morning? Who took the last of the milk? It was mine. I was going to eat cereal. That milk was mine. It belonged to me. Or maybe you see a bagel, the last bagel in the wrapper before you go to bed, and you think, I'm going to eat the bagel in the morning. And you wake up, and somebody ate it in the night. What do you say when you wake up? That bagel was mine. Even though you didn't tell anyone, even though you didn't mark it, it was your bagel. Sometimes we designate certain foods in our homes, don't we, that they belong to us. Sometimes my wife, Heather, gets Dickie's barbecue on Sundays after church. And I'm, when I get home around 1.30 after preaching the third service, I'm exhausted, I'm hungry, and I'm in desperate need of a nap. So last week, I walked into our house and saw a Dickie's bag on the table. And it was like, ah. And my heart leapt within me the way John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb in Luke's gospel. I was so happy that God made barbecue and that pulled pork was no longer off limits like it was for the saints in the Old Testament that it was now declared clean. So I sat down and enjoyed my Texas-style barbecue. But I couldn't eat it all because there was so much. So I ate half of my meal. Pulled pork, brisket, beans, fried okra, mashed potatoes, and a roll, and I saved half of it for dinner. But to be more specific, to be biblical, I sanctified half of it for dinner. I wrote this on the outside of the box, which I do every time we get Dickies, because I don't always eat it. I always save some for dinner. I wrote there on the box what I always write on there. Dads do not eat. And I made the two... Letters O in the word do and not as a skull and crossbones. I wanted to let my children know that if they ate my fried okra, they would soon be staring Jesus in the face. <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma. Fried okra is one of our food groups. You mess with my fried okra and I'll do something that pastors aren't supposed to do. Listen, I'm not that sanctified yet, Grace. You touch my fried okra, and I'll end up doing something that I'll need to ask Jesus forgiveness for. That's what it means to be sanctified. I sanctified my Dickie's barbecue and my fried okra by setting it apart and saying that it belonged to me. That's what it means to be in the sanctification of the Spirit. It means that we belong to Jesus now. 
It means that the Holy Spirit has taken us out of sin, out of this world system, out of control of the sin nature and and the devil and all of that, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. He's taken us out of sin, and he has written on us, Jesus's, do not touch. And I imagine in the spiritual world, when the Holy Spirit writes those words, do not touch, he uses He uses a skull and crossbones as the letter O's in his note too. Because if you mess with Jesus, beloved, Jesus will do something to you and he won't have to ask himself for forgiveness. The Holy Spirit has set us apart. We belong to him now. This happens in salvation when we are born again. When the gospel is preached and we experience regeneration by the Spirit, we are made alive by the Spirit so that we can respond in repentance and faith. At that moment, we are set apart unto God and we belong to his family. We are different from other people as we saw last week because now we belong to Jesus. So when you become a Christian, you become weird. You become different. That's what we saw last week. Before you were a Christian, you were a rebel and an enemy of God. But when you became a Christian, you moved to another place. You changed locations, as Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit set you apart. He sanctified you when you became a Christian. He delivered you out of the domain of darkness and he transferred you to the kingdom of God's beloved son. So that now God says to you, Christian, you are my beloved. You belong to me. And when the Holy Spirit drops you off in the kingdom of God's beloved son, right as you get off the Holy Spirit bus, if you will, he hands you an envelope that has these words written on the front. Welcome to the family of God. And when you get off the Holy Spirit bus and you set foot in the kingdom of God and you open the envelope that the Holy Spirit handed to you, on the inside is a piece of paper that says this, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. And there's no one that can or will kick you out of his kingdom, out of his family, out of his home. That's what life in the family of God the kingdom of God is like. And the Holy Spirit is the one who puts you in the sphere of perpetual favor and unabated delight. He set you apart. He sanctified you. And now you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus and that ought to comfort your heart. It ought to comfort you in life and in death. As question one of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism is telling you, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. And that truth gets further amplified in the third phrase that modifies elect exiles. Phrase number three in verse two, we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I cannot wait to show you how Jesus rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty in bringing about our salvation because we've already seen what the Father did. We've already seen what the Spirit did and now we will see what Jesus has done. So what does phrase number three mean? What does for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood mean? What in the world is this referring to? While it, on the surface, it may seem that it's referring to our obedience to God and us having our sins washed away, it's actually referring to something completely different, something outside of us. Of course, because we are saved, should we live lives of obedience? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Is there assurance that we can have our sins washed away? Yes, absolutely. We believe that here at Grace, and we believe that that's what the Bible teaches. We believe that we are called to live holy lives for him, and we believe that we are forgiven and cleansed from every sin. But I don't think that this passage is saying that. There are plenty of passages that talk about how we are to be obedient how we are to live obedient lives. There are plenty of passages that talk about how our sins are washed away because of the blood of Jesus, but I don't think that this passage is saying that. Remember, this passage, remember why Peter's writing, this passage is all about how God has saved us, how the triune God rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty to bring us to him. We already know how the Father worked. We already know how the Holy Spirit worked. So this phrase is telling us how Jesus did his part to save us. It's not telling us to be obedient and to make sure we're, we're washed in the blood. There are other verses in the Bible that tell us that. This verse is telling us how Jesus did everything to save us. And that's a big difference between what we're called to do and what he's already done. This phrase here, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood is referring to what scholars call the active and passive obedience of Jesus. The active and passive obedience of Jesus. Let me explain. This may be a new concept to you. I've said it numerous times in sermons but let me explain the active and passive obedience of Jesus and how I think we should translate this phrase. 
There are several ways to translate the word for, F-O-R, in Greek. Now, without going into all the details because it would take way too long, let me tell you how I think this verse should be translated. I think the word for should be translated with a causal sense, because of. I think it should be translated as because of. That's one of the ways that you can translate the Greek word ace there. And if you take Jesus Christ in the Greek as a subjective genitive, again, I know this is going over some of your heads. When it's a subjective genitive, it's describing the obedience that belongs to Jesus. It's subjective to him. It's his obedience. Then you get it translated this way. We are elect exiles because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and because of the sprinkling of his blood. We are elect exiles because Jesus obeyed and because Jesus spilled his blood, because Jesus lived the life we could never live and because Jesus died the death that we deserve. So what Peter is saying here is that we are elect exiles. We are saved by the life and the death of Jesus. We are saved by his obedience to the law, and we are saved by him becoming a curse for us on the cross because we're sinners who could never obey the law. We are saved by the active and passive obedience of Jesus. We are saved because of Jesus' obedience and because Jesus shed his blood. Joel Green explains it this way. Held together in tandem then, are the totality of Jesus' life of faithfulness to God and the sacrificial quality of his death, both together treated as redemptive. Indeed, it is precisely because of Jesus' obedience that he could serve as the sacrifice, since in the sacrificial system, an unblemished animal served as an analogy of the election of Israel set apart for life in relationship to and service of God. Within this system, sin and death are transferred to the sacrificial victim. It's purity and life transferred to those who receive the benefits of the sacrifice. Working within this economy, Peter declares that Jesus wipes away sin and its effects through his obedient life and death. We are saved because of Jesus Christ because of his obedience and because he sprinkled his blood. And in theological circles, this is called the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, let me explain each of those. The active obedience is his obedience to God's law, the law of God. It's Jesus obeying all of God's law for us. God's law is there for every human being, and Jesus says, be perfect as my Father is perfect, and otherwise fully obey the law, and we're struck by that. We're like, I can't because I'm a sinner. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, or motive. So Jesus' act of obedience is him obeying God's law for us. It's his obedience of the law, which God requires of us, but none of us can do because we're sinners. And that gets transferred to us in salvation. That's the active obedience of Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying you are saved, you are elect exiles because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. And the passive obedience 
doesn't mean that Jesus was passive and lazy and allowed things to happen to him. The word passive comes from the Latin passio, means suffering. It's like the movie, the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Messiah. So Jesus' passive obedience is everything that he suffered in his life, but in particular to his taking the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. So again, let me read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 37, speaking about suffering, saying that Christ suffered. Question, what do you understand by the word suffered? Answer, that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So the active and passive obedience of Jesus is his perfect life and his perfect death. And you have to have both to be saved. You cannot merely speak of Jesus dying for your sins. You must also say that he lived a perfect life for you. And you cannot just say that he lived a perfect sinless life for you. You must also say that he died for your sins. And I'm afraid in in evangelicalism, in our day, we only tell people that Jesus died for you. Our gospel presentations should include the fact that Jesus lived for you. Here's the law, sinner. You don't meet the standards because you break it every day. But there was one man, the God man. He lived the perfect life. He met the standard. He transfers that to you. So in our gospel presentations, we not only just, should we say that Jesus died for you, we should say that Jesus lived for you. And this is why J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, said this on his deathbed. His last words were, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. There's no hope without the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he obeyed the the law of God fully. There's no hope without it. It's not enough that he died for us. We needed him to live for us. The life that we stress in Christianity is the past life of Jesus where he fully met all the demands of the law for sinners like us who break his law every day so that when we believe in him, he says, I take your rebellion and your sin. I give you, I credit you, I impute to you my perfect life of meeting the demands, the high standard of a holy God. God calls all of us to a holy standard. He says, be perfect. Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. How in the world can I be perfect? I'm a sinner. How in the world are I going to meet that demand? I send my son. He lives the life that I require of every human being. And his record can be yours if you turn from your sin and trust in him. J. Gresham Machen knew that if Jesus did not live a perfect life, if Jesus did not fully obey the law of God on our behalf, then we would be doomed. So Peter is saying here that because of the obedience of Jesus, his active obedience and his passive obedience, because of that, we are saved. Peter is saying to every Christian, because of the obedience of Jesus, because of his active and passive obedience, he's saying this, Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. And that's why Peter will pray a blessing on his audience in verse 2. 
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter prays this because he knows his readers are suffering. They are suffering because they are strange and weird and peculiar because they belong to Jesus, because they are disciples of Jesus, and this world system doesn't understand them. So Peter wants to inject them with some gospel hope so that they can endure their sufferings and endure their trials. He wants God's grace and peace to overwhelm them. He wants God's grace and peace to flood their hearts. He wants them to truly believe that God the Father chose them in love. He wants them to truly believe that the Holy Spirit set them apart. He wants them to truly believe that Jesus saved them through his life and death. And as they dwell on these truths, Peter knows God's grace will come to give them the strength they need to endure suffering. And then God's peace will come to comfort them as they face trials. Peter is telling his readers, because the triune God rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty when he saved you, you are now in union with Christ. You belong to him. They're experiencing trials. They're tempted to doubt God's love. Why is this happening? Is he punishing me? Is he mad at me? Peter wants him to have peace. No, no, you're forever in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. You are in union with Christ now. You belong to him. And if Peter knew pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he might have quoted him here. But since Peter didn't know Sinclair Ferguson, allow me to let Sinclair Ferguson explain in short what it means that we are in union with Christ. He says this about union with Christ. It's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? It's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. That's why Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's Jesus' active obedience. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and that comes to us because of the active obedience, the perfect life of Jesus because he obeyed the law for us. That's grace, getting something we don't deserve. His perfect record. And Jesus' passive obedience brings us peace because we don't get what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Punishment in hell forever for not meeting the standard of God's perfection, his law. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We deserve death. But Jesus died in our place. And because of that, we have peace with the holy God. So when Peter prays for grace and peace to be multiplied in their lives, he wants the reality of being in union with Christ to be multiplied in their lives. When Peter prays for grace and peace to be multiplied in their lives, he's praying that they would remember this one truth. Christian, you live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. When Peter prays for grace and peace to be multiplied in their lives, he is saying to them and to us and to every Christian who would ever read his letter, because God the Father chose you in love, because the Holy Spirit set you apart and now you belong to him, because Jesus lived the life you never could and he died the death that you deserve, because of all of that, then it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. Because the triune God rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty when he saved you, 
Christian, you are now in union with Christ. You belong to him. And because you are in union with Christ, then it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ have been pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. If that doesn't warm your heart, if that doesn't comfort your heart, if that doesn't recalibrate your heart, if that doesn't make you want to stand and sing of God's love for us, then I don't know what will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in saving us and choosing us in love. You knew we would sin. You knew we'd be born sinners and rebels. You knew we would act on that, live lives like that, and yet you still chose us because you love us. And Father, the Holy Spirit set us apart so that now we belong to you and your son Jesus lived the life we could never live. He died the death that every single one of us deserve. And because of all of that, we are forever in your perpetual favor and unabated delight, God. Would you help us when we sin and we sin all the time and we doubt your love? Would you help us as we go through trials not to doubt your love, not to think that you're mad at us? Would you let grace and peace be multiplied in our lives to give us strength to endure suffering, to give us strength to endure trials? Would you let the peace of God flood our hearts that Jesus lived the life that you required of us and you have given us his record that's our record now, God. Even though we live as sinners every day, our record is that we're perfect in your eyes and blameless. God, would you let that strengthen our hearts? There's nothing we can ever do to pull ourselves out of your favor or out of the delight that you have in us as your beloved. Do that in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.